We're going to be sharing a, a message here in a few moments, the wisdom of the Spirit from Acts chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you want to make your way to the book of Acts chapter 6. But before we do, I just have a wonderful praise report. Maybe you've been praising the Lord too. My wife and I have been praying through this COVID period of time. Uh, I don't know what your prayers sound like, but we're like, Lord, would you please bring out the truth of all of this conflicting, you know, messages. And now with uh, Tony Fauci's, all his emails coming out, now we can see what he was saying publicly and uh, our uh, uh, live stream touched on that Thursday night and just showing the, the differences between what he's saying in his email and then what he's publicly saying. Because we we're getting so many conflicted messages, right? Back in March of 2020, you don't need a mask. And then a couple of months later, it's like everybody must wear a mask till by the end, you got to wear two masks. If one is good, then two is better. And uh, I'm really just holding my breath. How about you for June 15th when, woo, we are free from the, my wife and I call it, from the masquerade party. And I know some people have a mask fetish and they're still going to wear it just because now they're addicted and they love to uh, cruise around on it. But uh, we're hoping to have a little bit more uh, liberty and normality come into our lives. And so we just rejoice. And I would encourage you, keep praying that all of these things would come out in, in the wash, right? The truth makes a difference. If the truth can just come out and be exposed then the truth will set everybody free. The same thing with these voter uh, investigations. I mean, it's a little Johnny lately, come lately, isn't it? Now they're going to do uh, voting audits. Uh, but uh, hopefully they can just pray that the truth comes out about that. Let's, I mean, if there's nothing there, then examine it. Look at the evidence. We're not afraid of the evidence. So God hears the prayers of his people. And as we're praying for our nation, praying for our leaders, and really praying for liberty to continue in the United States of America, our prayers are reaching heaven and, and they will make a difference. Well, we want to get into the word and get strengthened and encouraged. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, with our message, the wisdom of the Spirit. And from this passage of scripture, I want to share with you four things, the problem, the priority, the people and the prosperity that comes through it. Good leadership always faces the challenges and the problems in front of you. You don't hide from it. You don't try to ignore it. You don't try to run from it. You have to press into it by faith and the Spirit of God. The book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit working through believers, working through leaders to bring about God's kingdom here on earth as far as hearts being saved and on their way to heaven. And so we're going to look at this in Acts chapter 6. Please stand for the reading of the Word of God. As we read these seven verses together. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the, the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, 
Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Father, thank you for your incredible word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you would change our lives from glory to glory as we press in and your Holy Spirit ministers to us. You said, Father, that we fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so in Jesus' wonderful name, we ask, precious comforter, helper, teacher, anoint us now and instruct us into your truth. In Jesus' Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this wisdom of the Spirit, we want to first discover the problem. Now, oftentimes, the problems are a mixed bag of one of blessing and then burdens. Have you ever discovered in your life that when life is really blessed, then there's some burden that somehow kind of balances it out? You always want that, that one item that you would fill in the blank for. Right now, your life would be perfect if you could remove what? There's always those things that seem to bring our feet back down to planet Earth. And the children here of, of God that are in this exploding church, look at the problem. It actually is a growing pain that is taking place. We know a little bit about growing pains here at God Speak, right? Within uh, a few months, it was 400% growth because all the other churches closed and now they're all coming here and how do we, how many services did we do and where do we put them and the overflow and we had people uh, some Sundays ago, we actually had chairs even set up in the kitchen through the cutout there for the kitchen because we were trying to make room for everybody that's coming. Plus those who are live streaming because they simply didn't want to get dressed tonight. God bless you guys in your pajamas at home. But you have all of these things that come with growing pains, just like a family. When you have a family, you've got this, you know, you start, you got the little one-bedroom apartment, and it's just husband and wife, and life's great, and that first baby comes along, and okay, now we, we, we need to get another bedroom. And, and as things grow, you have to work through those problems. My dad would tell me over and over, years ago, son, all of life's about solving problems. You just got to solve problems. And you wish it wasn't that way, but it is life and it is reality. In this passage of scripture, in verse one, it says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Here Luke, the author of the book of Acts, takes a mathematical term and he changes it from one that he had used back in chapter two. You see, back in chapter 2, when the church Peter preached and some 3,000 people exploded on the scene, they were believers, they were baptized, and it says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. After those 3,000 were saved, the addition was just, hey, here's a person, there's a person, here's a person, there's a person. It's addition. It's not multiplication. And obviously, the exponential growth that happens when multiplication is included. Because through the process, all the way through the book of Acts, Luke, Dr. Luke, is a, uh, a very detailed bookkeeper. 
He does all of the research. He's writing this book to a guy by the name of Theophilus. Most believe a rich patron that was able to support him while he did the investigative work to write, write the gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when we see this, he, he numbers everything. He, he's attuned to how many are there, what's going on. Every now and then you'll hear in church circles, oh, you don't want to number the congregants because David numbered the children of Israel and a plague came to Israel. Have any of you ever heard that? No. I don't know where you guys have been. Anyway, obviously it must be the strange circles that I've ran in for years. Especially among preachers. Oh, we don't, know, we don't number our people because, you know, David numbered the people and he got himself in trouble. Well, there was a specific command in the Old Testament in God's covenant with Israel that they not do that. And for the New Testament, it's not the same. When on Pentecost, when 3,000 got saved, Luke said, there's 3,000. But even prior to Pentecost, he said in Acts 1.15, in the upper room, before Pentecost came, it said the number of the names was about 120. I mean, he's counting 120 now, then 3,000 later. And then it tells us in Acts 2.41 that 3,000 souls were added to the church. And then in Acts 4.4, after Peter and John healed the lame man, it says the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Realize in their numbering, they usually just counted men, adult men. They weren't counting the wives and the children. And so if you got 5,000 men, how many wives and children? And I mean, you, you've got a truckload of people. As a matter of fact, even in... Uh, the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel came out, the fighting men, only of fighting age, 600,000 men. And that's the only number that we really solidly have of that. And, and yet, that doesn't include the women and children. So there's two to three million, and those are conservative estimates. God's into details. Every life is not just a number. It's a soul that he Numbers every hair upon your head. Jesus telling us about the detail in which God loves us. Is it God's goal to let the world just languish in its sins? Or does God have a heart to reach the world? When we see these exploding numbers, and now in those days the, the disciples are multiplying. We're in those days here at Godspeak where the disciples have multiplied in an incredible way. And you guys have created tremendous problems for our team. Right? There's people everywhere. We've got to come up with children's ministry and nursery ministry and, and ushers and all of the, you know, youth ministry and trying to react and to grow through that. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we talk about solving the problems. But realize that growth in God's kingdom is God's plan to reach a hurting world. Every now and then you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, I, I don't know that God's plan is for a church to grow. Is that right? How many people in this community don't know Jesus, are not saved, and are not on their way to heaven? The opposite is true, right? Because the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many people are on their way to hell. And so God loves the people in this community. He loves our neighbors. He loves our family. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's heart is that no one would perish Jesus then commands us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You see, this experience of uh, this command to go, it's not a suggestion. 
The gospel has went around the world, but because people have, God puts a burden on their heart to go to this people group and to share Jesus' love with them. It may be hard, they may be persecuted, they may give up their life, they may, they may go through all kinds of things, but that's the kind of message and the passion with which we are to take that message. Now, you and I don't have to cross the ocean, it's just simply God living his life through you to love your coworker, to love your neighbor, your classmate, your neighbors, the people that God puts in your life, that's your sphere of influence. Do you know that you're going to reach people in your love for Jesus that nobody else, I'm not going to reach them, Rob's not going to reach them, nobody, Greg Laurie's not going to reach them, because God has put them in your back pocket, in a sphere of influence that you can have in that relationship. And that's what is happening. These disciples are multiplying. So the problem is actually a growing problem, a growth problem, but this is where it begins to break down, because all growing pains... The cracks in ministry show. Where, where are we dropping the ball? Where are we failing? How are we messing up? How, how are we, who's not being ministered to? And that's where the problems show up. Now, when those problems show up and they're consistent and the voice is loud enough, you, pretty, uh, you're, you can guarantee you're going to hear about it. Did you know that people's favorite hobby in church is complaining? <laughs> people love to complain. They love to complain about the music. They love to complain about the preacher. People go out to lunch with friends and they have roasted pastor for lunch. I mean, they, they love to, you know, it's just part, something about humans. But oftentimes there's real traction to the complaint. And that was true in this case. It, it tells us in the rest of that verse, of verse one in chapter six, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hebrews and the Hellenists, they're both Jews, but the Hellenists spoke Greek and they were raised in Greek culture. They believed all of the Old Testament scriptures. They were Jewish, but they spoke Greek and they were influenced by Greek culture. Therefore, at Pentecost, when all these people got saved and there are all these Hellenists there, and now there's these, these Hebrew widows that, you know, if you speak Hebrew, you're the super spiritual. And now if you're a Greek speaking, sometimes there's a language barrier. There's, basically, there's a discrimination going on between these widows. And there was no difference in the bloodline of these widows because they're all Jewish. But there was a breakdown in communication. There's a breakdown culturally speaking. And so how do you overcome that problem? You could ignore it, but it seemed to be legit. It was real. Now, understand, these widows, if they don't have family to take care of them, there's no welfare program. Now, the early church, Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 5 gives very, very strict requirements for a widow to be on the roll. And if you read through it, I mean, it, it's, it's very strict. A, a lot of gals wouldn't make it. And yet, these women were on the roll to be supported with daily bread. Now, if there are 5,000 men and women and children, I don't know how many widows there are, but it's a, it's a lot of ladies. 
and they all need to eat every day. And so the 12 apostles, because that was the only leadership team, there's 120 in the upper room, but the 12 apostles were those ordained leaders. And it appears that they were just running around like a chicken with their head cut off, trying to feed all of these widows, trying to do the Bible studies, trying to do everything. And they realized they needed to bring about a change. <clears throat> Sometimes there's a, a, a difficulty in the problems in church, and it's not say a language barrier of Greek or Hebrew or uh, a Greek culture compared to a Hebrew culture. Sometimes the problem is, hey, hey the moms don't want to drop their kids off in the nursery because it's, it's not a very good environment or they don't feel it's safe or it's not clean and you have to go in there and revamp everything and make sure that you recruit great help. Sometimes people can't get a parking space. When I started a church in Idaho Falls in 1993, we moved five times as a small fellowship, five times in one year. Our motto on our bulletin should have been, you can worship with us if you can find us. <laughs> because everywhere we went, we would, we would start to grow in this place, and then things that were out of our control, we would get moved out because we were really just <laughs> beggars looking for a place to, uh, you know, hey, yeah, you can meet in this building until it sells. And we met it for three weeks, and then it sold. Now get out. <laughs> and everywhere we went, it was like that. And you're constantly growing. But after one year, we had about 100 people coming, but we didn't have anywhere to put the kids. So what are we going to do with the kids? If they're in the service, they're disruptive. I mean, they, they don't like my preaching very much, and they're yelling and screaming. And, and so I didn't know what to do. So we just went down to Sam's Club and bought a, a bunch of uh, picnic tents. And, well, not picnic tents, actually. They had to have sides on them for, like, the nursery stuff. So we had this little tent camp out in the yard of the church for Sunday school. And so every... Every Sunday morning, guys had to show up early, set up all the tents, put kids in the nursery here. And, and I was just thinking to myself, I'm a young pastor, I'm 28 years old, and I'm like, nobody's coming back. We're like the, the, the tent church children's ministry. I mean, who wants to bring their kids? Say, here, put them in this tent. And what we didn't realize through all of it is that the kids were so stoked to go to a church that had tents, they were dragging their parents on Sunday morning. They're like, let's go there, let's go there. And what I thought it was going to be basically the end of us, it actually caused us to grow because everybody with young kids wanted to go to the cool church that they could have, go to their Sunday school class and a tent. And you have to adjust through the, those days in a storefront. You know, we moved into uh, two storefronts and then we outgrew that and then we moved into two, uh, four storefronts and I had my office. I had to move my office four times because I would get an office, which is actually not very big. And Four times I would get my office set up, and then after about a month to five weeks, the children's ministry leader would come to me and say, Pastor Rick, we, we have too many kids for the room. Can we have your office? And so I moved office to office to office, and, and after the, at the fourth one, I said, if you take this one, I'm going home. I'm just done. <laughs> you know, you have to adjust in those, those problems or those issues, and that's what the disciples do here. You know, it's that way in your life, personally. Or if you have a business, right? Are you facing those problems? What, what are the problems that are holding you back? There was a lot of obstacles for the church to get over here, right? Even to have that first communion service where they had 10 chairs set up in here because of the new COVID rules, because we didn't know how you know, nefarious and evil this flu was. And then uh, you know, doing the, oh, all the um, filters for the, you know, heating system and air conditioning system to try to filter out that stuff. 
going live stream. You remember the first live stream with Rob on the couch? It looked like an ISIS beheading video. Right, it's just like this old love seat, and Rob's just said, hey. <laughs> and, and, and it's moved along all this, and it's like new technology and figuring it all out. And the church has adjusted, it's adapted, it's moved on, it's dealt with the problems. And that's what we have to do, because good leadership will always face those things. You see this thing about the neglect of these, the, the prejudice Sometimes you have prejudice to other, you know, certain people are not being ministered to or if they're brought into the, the church, they're shunned just because of the way they look or something doesn't look right for you. You know, back in the 60s and the 70s, the big deal was the hippies. Now, I see a lot of gray hair out there, so some of you were bell bottoms, barefoot, big beards, you were rocking it. But those people would come to church and the churches would turn them away because they didn't have shirts on or they didn't have shoes and they were just like, you know, kind of these crazy hippies. And one morning, Pastor Chuck showed up at church and his elders had put a sign on the window of the door, the front door, basically like the restaurant, no shirt, no shoes, no service. That's what they did at the church. And Chuck came in and he hadn't approved it. They hadn't talked to him. And he pulled down the sign and he went and gathered up the elders. He goes, what's this about? Because these hippies were coming. And they had a brand new church and a brand new carpet. And they said, well, Chuck, it's, it's a well-known fact that the oil and dirt on people's bare feet ruins carpet faster. So if we let these hippies come in, they're going to ruin our brand new carpet. And he said, fine, that's an easy solution. There's an easy solution to this problem. Rip, rip out the carpet. He would have rather touched their hearts than worried about the stinking carpet. I had the same problem when I built my lap, the latest sanctuary where I was with a thousand people, a thousand seats. And, and we were using it hard and, and the guy that had built it was our facility guy and he, was, he started telling me about all the problems that were happening and how the building was getting beat up and, and we need to start you know, having announcements to straighten out the people from beating up the building. I said, let's beat the tar out of it and then we'll repaint it and we'll redo whatever we gotta do. These are people that need to be touched by the love of God. You see, people get so hung up in their crystal cathedral or they get so hung up in whatever their, their prejudice is that they're missing the opportunity to really love people. And the early church was missing the opportunity to love and minister to these precious Greek widows with the language barrier and everything that's there. Galatians 3.28 tells us, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Once we come to Jesus, man, he tears down the walls. I love that passage that it tells us that he does that. And this was not as extreme as Jew and Gentile, because they were not Gentiles. They were Greek-speaking Jews. But even if it went further, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 18, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he is our peace who has broken down the middle wall of separation. Through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. I had a guy years ago, this is after 9-11, he said, Pastor Rick, I don't have any prejudices, and I'm just glad that everybody's coming to church, and I just want everybody to love Jesus. I said, oh, really? So if Osama bin Laden decided to show up at church next Sunday, are you going to be excited that Osama bin Laden's in church? Now, we would preach the gospel, tell him about Jesus, and then we would call for SEAL Team 6. But we would have told him about Jesus, 
right? You know, sometimes there's certain um, stigmas. You know, after, after Pearl Harbor, it went through this whole thing of the, the attack on Japanese Americans, right? You remember. And, and after World War II, if you were German, you know, a German-American, then there was real problems too. And so sometimes that stigma has to be dealt with through the love of Jesus. Like, you know, let's just let that go. It's not about being a German. It's not about being a Muslim. It's not about any of those things. It's about real people that God loves and Jesus died for. And we're going to love them and share the hope. I was going to uh, do a pastor's conference for 122 uh, Iranians that six months before were Muslim. And they had this radical revival where they had about 1,000 people converted in Islam. Now, uh, I mean, in this Islamic state of Iran. And if you convert somebody from Islam to Christianity, it's a capital crime. You can be executed. Like, it's serious. And I was going through the, the TSA thing, and I'm excited to go minister to these guys because they've all come to Christ, and I'm going to go teach them how to be pastors in Istanbul, Turkey. And, and this big soldier type, the TSA guys, what are you doing? And it was a small town airport, so I just told them, and people knew me because I was on TV and things, and I where are you going, Pastor Rick? I said, well, I'm going to Istanbul, Turkey. I'm going to minister at this pastor's conference with a bunch of former Muslims that have given their life to Christ. And he got, you could see, he just turned red. He was so torqued off. And he looked at me, he's like, why? Because of that stigma. But for me, I just smiled and went and loved the people. You know, I think sometimes you have to face the issues of your heart or you can't get over that hump and commit it to the Lord and ask the Lord to break down that middle wall that's separating you from other individuals. Well, it's not only a problem that was from a growth problem and a blessing that became a burden, but here we have to sort it out by priority. In verse two through four, then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is such a great word because it's about priorities. Have you discovered that if you don't make your priorities, as the old saying goes, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time, right? You, you have to have priorities. And the 12 apostles, they sorted this out. They've been serving all these widows. And it's not that serving widows was beneath them and being busboys and waiters was beneath them. That wasn't the case. They were, all had servants' hearts. But they couldn't do both. This is always the thing. That's about priorities, right? I can't do too many things. If I'm going to be really good, if you're going to be really good at your profession, you're going to focus exactly on what you're supposed to do and you're going to do what only you can do. That's a lesson in leadership. As I raised up a ministry and had about 120 people on staff, if something came up, hey, what do we need to do this? My immediate thought was, can anybody else do that other than me? Now, if nobody else could do it, like preach Sunday morning, you know, preach Wednesday night, different things like that, then that was in my, my um, thank you. <laughs> that was in my court to deal with. But if I could delegate that to somebody else and anybody else could do that, there are a lot of things like that with even in my family. If there are things at, at the home, because I had a very busy schedule, if I, I could have somebody else do lawn care for the house so that I could spend that hour and a half, two hours with my family because I was on such an intense schedule, then that lawn care person can't love my wife and can't love my kids. 
You see, you can narrow down your priorities to where you are really, really, really functioning exactly where the Lord wants you. I heard a preacher one time say, because little churches are famous for this, they want the pastors to do everything, right? They, they, want, they want them to be omnipresent. <laughs> they want them to do everything. And I heard a pastor say, well, you can have my head, you can have my hands, or you can have my feet. Those are three different things. But if you want my head, I have to think about, pray about, and bring a sermon. If you want my hands, I'll uh, remodel the bathrooms. If you want my feet, you want me to do visitation all over the planet, then I'll do that. But I can't do it all. I can't do it all. And these apostles knew this. And anybody that you ever meet that is worth their salt and been effective, understand priorities. And you whittle that down. Right now, maybe in your life, there's so much busyness. And when you get too much busyness, you just become ineffective at everything. You're an inch deep and a mile wide, but it's better to be an inch wide and a mile deep and be really productive. And so the apostles sort through these priorities. And maybe some of us, we need to sort through our priorities. And these priorities, they boiled it down in a very succinct two parts. Those two parts in verse four says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We're gonna spend time studying God's word, delivering God's word, and spend time praying. That's what a preacher's ultimate job is. Prayer in the word, prayer in the word, prayer in the word. That's what his job is if he's going to be fruitful. If he's going to be a blessing to people, he's gonna bring something. I look at it this way. If I am not, if I'm too busy and distracted, running here, hither and yon, and then I show up here and I haven't prepared, I'm wasting 160 people's time. I'm wasting your time. Because you came here to hear something fruitful and productive. And maybe it's unbeknownst to you, but some people think you just get up and say whatever you want. But for me, I actually have to prepare to think things through. And the apostles knew that if they did this, this was going to transform the church from the problems they were having and the growth problems that they were having. Do you know that this is exactly what Moses did? Moses was, all the people were coming to minister to him. Can you imagine? There's 600,000 men. That means two to three million people, conservative estimates. And everybody that had a beef with their neighbor was coming to him like he was uh, Judge Judy. Right? There's a big line of them. And they're just coming. From the time the sun came up till the time the sun came down, or went down, he was sitting there making, you know, he was a judge between them. Yeah, you, yeah you're right. No, you're wrong. And, and back and forth. And his father-in-law, Jethro, shows up. And he was a man that just insightfully looked at this and said, no, you've got to have different priorities. You're going to wear these people out. There's no way for you to minister to all those people. And you're going to wear them out because they have to wait in line because... If the sun goes down and they've been waiting in line all day, they have to come back the next morning and get back in line. So it was very inefficient. So this is what Jethro said. The same exact thing that Peter, John, the apostles declared, they were going to spend time in prayer and the word. It says in Exodus chapter 18, verse 19, stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. Jethro tells him, Moses, this is what you should do. You should be praying for the people. Then you teach them, in verse 20, you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, show them the way in which they must work, walk, and the work they must do. He said, so just spend time praying to the Lord for the people and spend time teaching the people because the more well taught they are, they're going to live better lives. And then he tells them to delegate, to select 
Verse 21, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And then they had a supreme court, if you will, and lower, lower court experience where it says you are to oversee them in verse 22. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. Every small matter they themselves shall judge. I had about 10 middle ministers that served underneath me for uh, the last decade or so before I came here. And I would share with them, each of you, I should not hear about 95% of what you have going on. I should only hear about 5% of the problems. That's all I should hear. Because there's 10 of you, so if I hear 5%, 5% that, do you realize that's 50%? Because <laughs> there's 10 of you. And so don't be telling me every detail. It is said of Jimmy Carter, who is a very subpar president, that he knew who was playing tennis on Saturday morning at the White House tennis courts. That's how much detail he was into. Therefore, bogged down, he could not effectively see the big picture. And so a guy steps up right after him. You remember his name, Ronald Reagan. And he was the big picture guy. Don't tell him about details. Big picture, America's awesome. Iran let the hostages go free the day he was in office. They're like, a new sheriff's come to town, right? So you have to wrap your heart and your mind around this, but this is good biblical advice. Maybe you're overwhelmed at your job and you're a small business owner and you need to do what you're good at and how you got there in the first place. I had a friend, he, he, he loves snowmobiling because we're from the land of big mountains by the Continental Divide and he loves snowmobiling and then he loved to supercharge them and, and turbocharge these things. And so then he would create something and invent something, put it on a snowmobile and just go tear up the mountains. That's what he loved. And his love turned into this nationwide incredible business up where we're from. And, um, but as it grew, what happens is pretty soon now you're this great inventor and now you're going to become an administrator. That's no good. That's what has, happens to preachers. They get an audience from preaching the word of God and praying and then pretty soon they're administrating so they don't have as much time to pray and to study the word of God. And my friend, he just got a big staff. And every time you saw him, I would see him on Sunday, and he always had this, like, red face from being out on the snow in the, in the wintertime. And I'm like, what are you doing, Rocky? He's like, man, out testing my new stuff. And he knew how to delegate, and he knew how to build things. And the concepts that we see in God's Word and we see for God's people also work in your private personal life and your business life. This is good wisdom for all of us. Now, where is the answer? So we look at the problems. Now we understand the priority. Prioritize what you are, what are you passionate about and what are you proficient about and focus on that in your life and you're gonna be a productive person. What are you passionate about? What are you proficient about? So the answer is all the other work that needs to get done. There's a lot of other work that needs to get done and that is outside my preview of what I'm passionate about and what I'm proficient at. And so that means you got to recruit an army of people to do that work. 
So the people are the answer. They're always the answer. As you see a problem, you pray through it, you reprioritize, and you get ministry into other people's hands. And so that's what they said back in verse 3 when they said, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now this may seem strange to us. They're simply feeding bread to widows and they need to be full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Come on. Here's a piece of bread. God bless you. (laughs) How much wisdom does that take? Well, you discover when you're ministering to people that it's usually not just about the meal. It's now their heart's heavy about their daughter-in-law. You know, there's a lot of ministry that goes on in the day-to-day exchange of things. And so these guys were not only going to serve tables. And we get their seven names in verses 5 through 7. And two of them are really outstanding. The first in verse 5 is Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then Philip. Those two go on to stellar ministries. Because if you're faithful with little, this concept... People often tell me, especially, you know, you'll meet some young 25-year-old, and he feels called for grandiose things for God. And they'll tell me about their big, I believe God's called me, given me this great vision for this big ministry. I said, really? Are you just reading your Bible? Are you uh, volunteering at church? Well, you know, I don't really serve at church, but God's got something bigger for me. Really? God doesn't work that way. He gives you something small and sees if you're faithful and then he gives you more. And if you're not faithful with it, he just takes away what you have. He's like, why, why should I give this to you? You're not faithful. I'll give it to somebody else. Faithfulness is the value of faithful service is how God promotes his servants. Everything works through a process. Now, Stephen is going to go on. And Stephen, it tells us in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and 15, Stephen was full of the Holy faith and the Holy Spirit and did great wonders and signs among the people. He went from serving bread to widows to doing signs and wonders and preaching passionately. And as a matter of fact, as he has this big confrontation, and he's going to be the first martyr because they stone him to death in the book of Acts, it's... Um, He's standing before the council and it says, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. His face was radiating with the glory of God. This guy was serving tables one moment, doing signs and wonders, face glowing like an angel, preaching so passionately, the people turned around, drug him out and stoned him to death. And it's one of those cool stories as this first martyr in the book of Acts. A cool story for this simple reason. He says, as they're stoning him, he falls to his knees and he looks up to heaven. And when he looks up to heaven, he sees Jesus. He said, I see the son of God standing at the right hand of God. I see Jesus. And he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He prays for them that God would not charge them with this sin. Why it's so cool is the Bible says that Jesus ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the father. He sat down in rest. Jesus finished the work. It's done. To tell us die. But when Stephen was dying for his witness, Jesus stood from his throne to welcome Stephen into heaven. Isn't that cool? Like a standing ovation of Jesus, that'll rock the house. Right? And how'd that guy start out? Did he start out grandiose? He started out by serving bread to precious sweet little widows, little Jewish widows. That's how he started. But because he was faithful with it, God entrusted him more, and God worked in him, and he was filled with faith, 
filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there was Philip. And Philip went down to Samaria. In Acts chapter 6, it says, The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Look at Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. He preached the gospel. Philip was an evangelist. He preached the gospel, and then he did miracles. People were healed. Demons were cast out. He was doing supernatural stuff. How did he start off? Just serving little Jewish widows some bread. I want to encourage you, if you sense an inkling whatsoever in your love and service to God, just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you something to plug in and to faithfully serve. Just start faithfully serving, and God will entrust you with more and more. This is the weird thing. What is the reward from God for faithful service? More service. More work. That's the way it is. I was so excited to serve Jesus as a young Christian. And so I just, anything they needed help with. I heard the bathrooms needed to be remodeled. And I was a construction worker. I said, I'll do that. And I just took it on and I just did it. I, I just had fun with it. They said, oh, the fellowship hall needs to be remodeled. I said, okay, I'll get you know, a bunch of people from church and we'll paint the thing and we'll have a big pizza party. It'll be a blast. And we did that. Oh, we want to carpet the church. I said, well, we got a bunch of carpet layers, probably about, you know, five or six carpet layers in the church. Let's just bring the grunts that we got the muscle, but we don't know how to lay the carpet. Let's, let's do it on this Saturday. And we, <laughs> we laid hundreds of yards of carpet in this really big place. And everything. And, and then they're like, hey, you want to be an usher? You want to be a greeter? You want to be a Sunday school teacher? You want to be a deacon? And, and I was like Mikey on the old Wheaties commercial. Hey, get Mikey. He'll do it. Hey, just ask Rick. Rick will do it. I had no intention of being a preacher. I had no intention of being a pastor because I came from such a dark place. I was just thankful. I felt very much like Psalm 84. David says that I would rather be in your house, Lord, as a doorman. I'd rather be in your house as an usher than a thousand days anywhere else. I'd just rather be in your house, loving you and loving your people and being useful for you. That's what I want to do. And one thing leads to another and then you're teaching a home Bible study and then, you know, then the Lord calls me out of men's retreat to go into full-time ministry. And I really wrestled with that because I, I didn't know what this whole pastor thing was. And Tammy and I didn't grow up in the church, so it was a strange new world to us. And after 32 years, it's still a strange world. <laughs> right? Church is a very eclectic, unusual place. And you're trying to figure it all out. But faithfulness, the answer to problems is Face the problem with faith, prayer, and courage. Then realize that you need to prioritize. Hey, what should we, I be doing? What should you be doing? And let's give everything else away to somebody else that has a heart to be faithful in the, the baby steps of ministry and step in there and, and feed some widows. And there's seven of them that are gonna do it. And this is the mind-blowing thing, you guys. In verse five, it says, the saying pleased the whole multitude. You know how hard it is to please everybody? This, this is all a Jewish church. Now, when you're in, a, a, in, in Israel, they have all these Jewish jokes. Now, this is them self-deprecating and, and joking about them. They'll say things like, we, we're sabra, which is a prickly pear, that they're really prickly on the outside. They seem kind of, you know, uh, hard. But when you get inside, it's, it's soft and sweet. And once you're inside the heart of a Jew, they'll love you for the rest of their life. They have another one, though, that, that struck me when I saw that uh, the saying pleased every, everybody was excited about this solution. Everybody. You know it's the Lord, right? That's a miracle. Because the, our tour guide said, you know, if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. <laughs> right? That's a lot of conflict. The two is enough, but now we got three opinions. <laughs> 
So we know that it's the Lord. They laid hands on them, they prayed for them, and then God began to work. Going back to that concept of faithfulness, it says in Luke 16.10, he was faithful in what is least, is faithful also in much. If I can trust you with something little, when the big opportunity comes, I know you'll be faithful to that. And vice versa. If you're unfaithful with something small, and you don't think it's a big deal, the commitment you made, then I'm not going to entrust you with something else, the Lord is saying. In Matthew 13, 11, he says, whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. You see, what you have as you use it for God's glory, he will then entrust more to you. But if you don't use what he gives you, it's so, I mean, the saying on the street is if you don't use it, you lose it, Right? He'll just give it to somebody else. It's, it's like Mordecai coming to Esther and telling Esther, Esther, you know what? God is going to raise up deliverance for us from Haman and his awful edict that all the Jews are, it's going to be genocide. He's going to wipe everybody out. God will raise up another deliverer. But how do you know that you're not in that place for such a time as this? You're the one that God's giving the opportunity to. So make the most of the opportunities that God gives you and be faithful and see it through to the end as unto the Lord, not as unto anybody else. Don't start serving so that Rob can see you or I can see you or prominent people can see you. Do it as unto the Lord because you will get discouraged if you're serving and waiting for somebody to pat you on the back. I had my Sunday school director one day, she was kind of shaking her head after a service, and I asked her, I said, well, is everything okay? She said, yeah, she smiled, and, and she said, I, I've recruited this new Sunday school worker, she's went through the training for six weeks, and now she was in there, and I went into the Sunday school room afterwards, and after, the Sunday, after class was over, she was in there crying, the Sunday school teacher was crying, and it was her first Sunday, so I was very concerned, the director said, and she went in and said, you know what, is everything okay? And she said, she was sobbing, and she said, nobody even said thank you. All the parents that came and dropped their kids off, nobody said thank you. And the Sunday school director said, oh dear, <laughs> get used to that. <laughs> How do you know that you are truly acting like a servant when people treat you like you're a servant? That's how you know. But when people are, are, are you know, they... They just wait for the right. Have you ever had one of those guys you worked with? They just wait for the opportunity for the boss to come out and then they make some show out in front of him. It's like the rest of the time they're doing nothing. It's, it's, uh, it's, the Bible calls it serving with eye service as men pleasers. There's no reason, there's no fruit, there's no joy in serving just to serve people if, the, if, if it's not the love of Christ that constrains you. When you do it because you love Jesus and it just is the overflow of what you're doing, how you can love and serve other people, that's where the sweet spot of blessing is. You know, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 17 and it seems uh, rather stern. It seems rather austere. But it's a servant. He's been serving out in the field all day long. He's a servant. And he comes into his master, and his master doesn't say, oh, sit down and let, you know, eat with me. No, no, he's a servant. So he's, the master says, fix me a meal. So he fixes the meal, and finally the, the master goes away, and he's worked all day in the field. He came in, and he, he, he fed the, the master, and he cleaned up afterwards. And Jesus said, at the end of that day, 
for your servant's heart, just say, I'm an unprofitable servant, meaning I did my duty. I did what was required of me. You see, from my heart, I go through life loving Jesus and not worrying about what anybody else says. Now, as a leader, the Bible says to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So I try to encourage people and I try to build them up because that's what the Lord says to do. And so when you can navigate that in your heart for a servant, you're gonna be much, much more blessed in the fruitfulness. Lastly, as we wrap it up, it's actually the fourth. I forgot my number there. The prosperity in verse seven, it says, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What happens when they face the problem with prayer, faith, and courage, then they prioritize their life and then they delegate to the people, get the, the ministry effectively into the hands of other faithful people that are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom, what is the result? The result is a prospering ministry. Every time we hit a plateau and hit a roadblock here in our ministry, we're gonna go through that process. We're gonna reprioritize, we're gonna readjust. Right now we're trying to figure out a larger building so that we can fit everybody and less services. We're uh, adding staff. Over the last few months, we've added a number of staff members. We're opening up a, it uh, starts in a couple of weeks, a remodel over here on this multi-purpose room for more ministry things. Everywhere we're going, and you guys don't see that because you just show up on Sunday morning, but the, the team is being built and the ministry is being expanded and we're praying and we're looking for how God is gonna work in this new season. Because we want to, through faith and prayer, encourage. It takes courage to step out and rent something or buy something. In the COVID generation, that's terrifying. Both big building projects I started, I started one right after 9-11, which I was, <laughs> and then one right after the 2008, the crash. And in both those times, it was just like, and I prayed a lot about it. I'm like, Lord, you know. And it's like the Lord said, yeah, I know. Here's these harsh times. I'm gonna show myself strong and you're an idiot and you couldn't figure this out anyway and I'll take care of you. I'm like, oh, cool, that's great. The Lord, he chooses the foolish things of the wise to, uh, to confound the wise. Do you realize that? God wants to use people like you and me, ordinary people filled with his extraordinary spirit to be fruitful to love God and love him. And you are totally missing out. I know so many Christians that are missing out because they simply haven't made themselves available for usefulness to God. You wanna live an exciting life? There's nothing boring about the Christian life if you're walking by faith and making yourself available to God. Just watch what he does. It's very exciting. And it, you will be blessed. And a church will be blessed. The word of God continued to spread, it said here in this prosperity of verse 7. And the disciples multiplied greatly. They were already multiplying. Now they're still multiplying. And it tells us, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The most difficult people I would think to have reached was an actual priest in the temple that was still making human sacrifices and they heard the gospel that Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world and they believed. The priest did. Man, when God's moving and there is this uh, incredible magnitude of momentum among God's people, it's crazy who starts getting saved. People that are prominent, people that you would never think of, people that were in our church, in the ministry, and how the church, 
just exploded with growth. And my, my assistant pastor, it was kind of scary, but my assistant pastor had been a deputy sheriff for 23 years. And so he would sit there next to me and people are coming into church and out of church with multiple services, Saturday night, three Sunday morning. And he would, he would nudge me. He's like, wow, this guy was like the biggest drug dealer in this area of Idaho. And here he's, him and his wife are coming to church. Isn't that amazing? I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I hope he's saved. You know, it's like, is the, is the cartel coming in? One day we're doing a work day and this guy comes up and he's asking my assistant for some things and he walks away. And I'm like, who's that? And he goes, oh, it's this guy. I don't know, he's been coming around. He was arrested for murder last year and, and he got off and, and they're going through this, all these stories. And so we had all of these um, uh, law enforcement officers that went to our church, and then we had the, all these former criminals, and all these, our sound guy, our, our sound guy had been a meth addict for 25 years and got saved, and the Lord was doing this incredible work in his life. And, and everywhere you turned, God was saving people. At a TV ministry, so there was this guy in Rexburg, Idaho, which is 95% Mormon. I mean, it's like per capita, the strongest Mormonism in eastern Idaho. And this guy was a, the youth teacher at his Mormon ward. Now, he was a probation officer, and he was a very straight arrow Mormon with five kids. And he started watching the program, and he gave his life to Christ in a um, Judeo-Christian way instead of the Mormonism. And then he started listening to my sermon after that. I mean, he, he, he received Christ through watching TV. He never came to church. And then he would get every Sunday message, and he would go and preach it at the, the Mormon ward. <clears throat> And his name was Darren, really neat guy. And then Darren came to church after like three or four months. And he said, Pastor Rick, I'm preaching your sermon. <laughs> to the youth group every Sunday morning. And I said, oh, Darren, they won't let you do that very long. <laughs> and he was kicked out about a month later. <clears throat> I was at this baccalaureate speaking. And there's the guy, you know, because they had this... Uh, the, the dignitaries had robes and, you know, very, all this stuff. And afterwards, the guy that was the, the keynote for um, the grand poopah of the event fought his way through the crowd. He was like, Pastor Rick, Pastor Rick. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, am I in trouble with the grand poopah? I didn't do anything. You know, it's like, and he was the area prosecuting attorney and he had given his life to Christ. And he said, when I need to speak to a group of people, I watch on Sunday morning and I take that message and I go share it. You never know what God's doing. You never know who's listening. You never know how the Spirit of God is going to work in people's lives. That it just blows your mind. Do you want to know? People are watching your life. People are watching your life. Paul the Apostle said this, you are living letters known and read by all men. You are the only Bible a lot of people are ever going to read. Your walk with Jesus is too close to cracking this book that they may ever get until they come to Christ. So make yourself available in God's grace and to watch what God is going to do. In your own life, as you face those problems, don't ignore them. Face them with faith and courage. Prioritize things. See if there's a way for you to delegate and free up some of your time to focus on what's important and watch how God blesses your socks off through the process. The wisdom of the Holy Spirit will help you in that process. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And now as our hearts, Lord Jesus, turn to you for communion, we pray that you would prepare us now to remember your body and your blood. Let's take the communion cup. It should be there on your seat.
We're going to take the bread together and then the cup. On that last night with Jesus and his disciples, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Jesus allowed his body, he was given as a sacrifice, his body was brutalized and beaten, taking the punishment of my sins and your sins upon himself. And so as we take the bread tonight, let's remember him and what he's done for us. And as you take this cup, on that last night, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Jesus, we want to thank you for shedding your blood for us, giving your body for us, shedding your blood for us, and washing us clean. Here we are by faith tonight in you, Lord Jesus, as white as snow, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, it... We, we can't believe that you would love people like us and save people like us and minister and use people like us. But we want to say thank you tonight, Lord, as we remember your incredible grace upon our lives. Let's take the cup together. strengthen you as you walk with Jesus this week. Let's stand and sing this worship song.